You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. Welcome, everyone. We've got a great uh, episode for you today. We've got Laura Berenger, who is an outspoken advocate for the wounded resistors of institutional abuse. Laura is co-author of A Church Called Tove, Forming a Goodness Culture that Resists Abuses of Power and Promotes Healing. Laura is a curriculum writer for Grow Kids, a ministry of stuff you can use. She previously co-authored the children's version of the Jesus Creed and wrote a teacher's guide to accompany the book. She published articles for the Jesus Creed and the Inglewood Review of Books, and her writing has featured in Church Leaders, The Roy's Report, and Converge Summit. Laura is a graduate of Wheaton College. Laura, welcome to uh, Inverse Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's so nice to meet both of you, and um, I respect both of you and the work that you're doing in the ministries that you have. So it's an honor to be with you. Thanks again. Oh, that's very kind, Laura. Um, We're really looking forward to exploring a passage of your choosing. But before we do, we wanted to give you an opportunity um, for those that don't know of the brilliant resource that um, you have gifted the world uh, with Scott McKnight, who, for those who aren't aware, um, you also happen to be related to. I'll um, let you reveal as much or as little as that <laughs> as you wish. Yeah. Um, would you sketch a little bit um, that project? Um, and uh, well, I'm showing my bias, but its importance for this moment. Sure. This is my journey is an unlikely one. I am a school teacher, and I have spent nearly two decades of my career teaching primary grades children. So writing a book about abuse and how to resist it in churches and Christian workplaces is not an expectation that I ever held for myself ever. It's not a journey that I ever would have planned. My story began with the unfolding of the Willow Creek um, church tragedy, which is my former church here in the suburbs of Chicago, Illinois, where I live. Um, On March 23, 2018, a story broke down here in the Chicago Tribune about my former pastor, Bill Hybels, and it detailed allegations of sexual harassment against multiple women. So I read the headline of the article and was stunned and then started reading the article itself and I don't know the word to describe the emotions of the next season, destabilized, disoriented. We knew the names of the women and most of them were friends of our family and had been for a long time. And we knew that they would not just make up a story like Willow Creek claimed that they did. They were publicly called liars in the Chicago Tribune and from the stage of Willow Creek. And I, for me, it was my first experience of seeing a church rather than tell the truth, create false narratives and hurt people that were my friends. 
Um, and that's how the story began for me is how Tove began is my dad and I, so Scott McKnight is my father. Some of you may have heard of him. He is a um, well-known author, theologian, New Testament scholar. And we had, I mean, countless family conversations where he would privately explain to me Willow Creek's misuse of scripture, which I now understand is spiritual abuse. Um, he would, we would talk about the character of Christian leaders versus Willow Creek should be applying. And, and I was pushing him to be the one to write. I did not envision myself writing with him. I wanted him to write the book about what he had hmm. explained to me privately. I felt like I had learned so much and it was time for a theologian to speak. We needed to hear what he had to say. So one thing led to the next. We eventually decided to write together about a topic that is ultimately redemptive. And that is where a church called Tove, how it all began with really, it was personal for me with the unfolding of the Willow Creek story. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's, and as Jared already said, so timely, so necessary right now. Um, and I think there are so many folks trying to make sense of what's going on, not even just in terms of these big stories, but also like I hear my own students grappling with um, these smaller stories and these the stories that are not going to make it to big news, right, but still are happening all around. And so, yeah, thank you for your important work. Just uh, it's important and necessary. Thank you. Like I said, this is not a position I never thought as a teacher I'd be spending my spring break and weekends and evenings talking about abuse. Um, yeah, it's an un I have an unlikely story and, and not something I ever planned. So thank you. So Laura, as Jared already mentioned, we like to uh, kind of just ground and kind of set the atmosphere of our conversation with a scriptural text. And so have you chosen a text and what is that? And can you read it for us? I did. I picked Matthew 936. So should I start by reading it? Yes, yeah, so you can just go ahead and read that. Okay. Now. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Yeah. 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 I'm looking forward to getting into that. Yeah. Yeah, particularly in the context of uh, of your work and the impact that it's having at the moment. And maybe we should just give a disclaimer as well. Um, uh, your dad and I, uh, last time we were in person together, were uh, in Ireland and it was wonderful. Um, Chris, your, your mum was there as well. Um, and we were actually addressing these issues um, in the Irish context. Um, uh, I myself am a survivor so I know how important it can be and how much I appreciate um, uh, to actually warn people that um, this is a conversation that uh, we don't always have capacity for but to be listening to ourselves, and uh, it's it's here and it's available when people are, are ready for it um, and it's okay to take your time uh, working out when that is the time um, so with that said Laura we'd love to be able to um, ask you when do you first remember encountering the Bible? Before we, we get into this particular text, um, what are your earliest memories of the scriptures? Yeah, so I grew up 
under my father is a theologian and like I said, a new Testament scholar. And as long as I can remember, um, we've talked about the Bible in our home. When you asked that question, what immediately came to mind, and I, I don't know that I can like pull out specifics, but I have such clear memories of growing up when my dad would explain the context of the Bible. So reading a verse is one thing, but understanding what was happening in the ancient world at the time, that, those are my earliest memories of the Bible. And I always remember being fascinated by the early Christians, by first century, um, by the stories of Jesus and how revolutionary he was. And I wish I could, you know, think of something specific that, that, um, jumps out at me, but it's more just an overall like memory of growing up with <laughs> as a theologian's daughter, daughter, and he brought the Bible alive for me, knowing the context behind the stories. And that those are my first memories of encounter with the Bible or those conversations with my father. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it's always um, neat to think about, yeah, what those early memories are. And it is sometimes tricky. I think I can relate to the idea of like, it's not, I don't know what I would say is my earliest, but there are like these like sets of memories, right? Conversations. I remember sitting, um, my parents, when we were really young, we would come like before school, sit around the bed and like read scripture together and discuss it. And so like, mm -hmm. I don't know if that was probably not my earliest encounters, but those are like formative memories, not a specific time, but just that we did that regularly. There was a habit yeah. of our family practice, right? And so, but, um, but yeah, it's neat to have a New Testament uh, scholar, you know, as a, as a family member who's also providing so much more texture to the biblical backgrounds of these texts and stories, um, enriching them, right? Giving them a little bit more life. Um, that's kind of neat. Yeah. On tap yeah. all the time. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Laura, so as you think about your different encounters with scripture, um, how would you describe, you know, the kind of impact and force it was in your life? Like, would you describe it as something that was liberating, as oppressive, as something else? Like how, what kind of language and uh, mm -hmm. descriptions and characteristics would you give to those encounters with scripture? Yeah, so for me, and I realize how, I have a lot of gratitude for this. And as I've gotten older, I've realized that um, perhaps my story is different when I, well, I'm getting ahead of myself, but it wasn't until high school that I realized not everyone interprets the Bible the way that my father did and does. Um, for me, and like I said, I'm very grateful for this. The Bible was always liberating, um, especially for women in my childhood home. I was raised, um, if you know my dad's theology, I was raised in an egalitarian home. My mother is a doctor of psychology. She counsels men. She counsels women in a clinical setting. My father is a world-renowned theologian. Um, my whole life, he champions women as pastors and church leaders. I have funny memories of 
during my childhood, we would <laughs> endure family visits to my grandparents' Southern Baptist churches. And my parents would process in hushed voices after services about the male headship and its display and me like trying <laughs> to catch, me trying to catch snippets of it. Right. My father has written widely on the topic, his support of women in ministry. So this is the world that I was nurtured in, one where women joyfully worked as professionals outside the home. Men believe women could pastor and teach and confidently spoke and wrote in support of it. And I never questioned it really until I was in high school when I encountered how people sometimes don't believe that and believe it quite strongly. Um, Goddard and Grudem and Piper were not household names in the home mm -hmm. that I grew up in. We honored Cheryl Hatch and Ruth Tucker and Morna Hooker. It really, like I said, was not until my later years in high school that I realized how some folks disagree with the liberating way that, that I read the Bible. Um, funny story. I remember calling my dad as a Wheaton college student and all my classmates were like all a flutter, like John Piper's coming to campus. And I remember like, who is John Piper? Like I had no idea. We let's know those are not household names where I grew up. And I called my dad. He was probably like, why are you, what are you, what are you asking this question? Um, so for me, especially around the topic of women, I always, the Bible has always been liberating for me. I mean, it's, it's hilarious to think that, um, you know, parents worrying about their kids off at university and being in an experimental stage. And what if, what if they get into Piper? You know, what, what, <laughs> all, all these things that we've, we've sought to shield our kids from and, and right. what if they, you know, um, <laughs> Laura, I, I'm interested. Uh, we asked people about their hermeneutics, like what particular way of reading um, helps them read the text in ways that you described that are liberating, that that do bring life. Um, I'm also aware that your um, deep immersion in this particular work outside your vocation as a uh, would say primary school teacher here, um, but um, an educator of little ones. Um, it also must provide a, a different lens or at least uh, um, different realities to consider while reading. Um, for those who are seeking to engage in ways that uh, do deliver um, uh, rather than dominate, uh, and maybe with particular reference to um, seeking um, a reading that is helpful for those on uh, the underside of these kind of abuses of power, what would you offer others um, in terms of how to, how to read the scriptures in ways that bring life? I, when you, this question immediately brings to mind the most influential book that I personally have read in the last year and maybe ever is the making of biblical womanhood by Beth Allison Barr. Mm -hmm. um, it has made such, not only with my dad, my father's scholarship and, and what I grew up with, but her book made such a profound impression on me that I don't believe I will ever again, read the Bible the same way. Um, of course I will read the verses of the Bible, but her, um, her scholarship impressed upon me the importance of 
biblical context and historical context of reading the Bible through a lens of understanding of knowing its audience and the world that it was written in and for, I feel like I learned from her um, how to read like a historian, not just to take the words of the Bible at face value, but really to consider them in light of their context. Like one example I remember that really stood out to me in her book was that, and for me, like a lay person, I'm not a theologian, but I learned from her for Jesus, for example, chose women as witnesses for his resurrection. But yet this was an ancient world. And I wouldn't have known this as a lay person. This was an ancient world that didn't accept the word of a woman as a valid witness. Just that one example is extraordinary. It's revolutionary. Mm. So what I would what I would tell people if given the opportunity is that read the Bible, understanding the audience and the context in which it was written. For me, it changed everything. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, yeah I think that's really uh, interesting. I remember, so I was, a, I, w- I didn't go to Wheaton. I went to Messiah, right? So Oh, our rival. <laughs> but um. <laughs> But I was a biblical studies major in my undergrads. Way I always tease my students way back in the dark ages. That's what I say to my students. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, one of the things that was really powerful for me was you know getting opportunity to study the you know ancient contexts and worlds and kind of entering mm-hmm. into them and sometimes even reading other texts right in conversation out uh, with the Bible and just. Um, the ways in which it shifted how I even saw what the Bible was, what it was doing, what it's responding to, all these different questions. So I think mm-hmm. um, it's a great invitation, especially, um, I mean, in many ways, like there were times when it, that having access to biblical backgrounds wouldn't have been accessible to all people at all times. But certainly right now, um, it's so much more accessible to you know, uh, people, internet and things. Uh, now, of course, mm. you got to, uh, people have got to uh, be able to screen what's reliable and, you know, actually scholarly resources. But I do think um, um, having a sense of that ancient context mm-hmm. allows us to not um, impose our context as if they're mm-hmm. living in our world, right? Like yeah. the distance yeah. is actually helpful. Uh, you know, right. um, that we need to feel that a little bit more and then we can kind of wrestle and think about, you know, what does that mean? Like the example you gave, right? That Jesus, um, it was revolutionary. Is yeah. doing it, making a revolutionary subversive choice in choosing these women, um, as witnesses. Um, yeah, it's powerful. And yeah. So, yeah I, I really appreciate that. So I guess what all that, I would love to see and hear how you can bring us into this text that you've chosen um, and how you might uh, open that up for us and um, the kind of revolutionary implications and liberating implications that uh, might speak life into even these challenging situations we talk about abuse in the church. Sure. So I am told that this passage at the very end of Matthew 9 is easy to overlook And I see why it's tucked in between a series of 10 stories 
where Jesus is using his miraculous healing power to save people, to transform them, to rehabilitate, to restore wounded lives. And it's also tucked in there among the commissioning of his 12 disciples, right? To take his ministry of healing to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And I love that in the middle of this transition, at the end of Matthew 9, we find this beautiful verse. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And I love how Matthew describes the crowd. They were harassed and helpless. And I think this is how many people wounded by pastors and churches must feel like sheep without a shepherd. And then I also like, I understand it was, it was on those who had been ignored by the powerful, the leadership of Israel that Jesus focused his compassion and his love and his grace. And ultimately the greatest gift his redemption. And I also like, it also is impactful to me that Jesus didn't just have compassion on the wounded, but he acted like he immediately, he showed the compassion to the desperate and the hurting. And then he turned to his disciples and said, well, he said, the harvest is great. The workers are few pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest, ask him to send more workers into the field. But he acted like he had, not only did he see the wounded and have compassion on them, how, how, how beautiful a picture um, it must have been and feel to be seen as, as wounded by somebody, somebody who's been ignored by the powerful and the leaders that Jesus saw and had compassion and then he acted. And in the work that I've done in the last couple of years, researching abuse, um, researching the wounded, I just, I believe, you know, this is how, what an example Jesus gives us that he saw the hurting, he saw the desperate and had compassion and then acted. Mm. Laura, um, I'm, I'm aware that uh, some scholars highlight in this passage that the, the diseases and sicknesses um, themselves are a result of um, uh, the rule that they're living under, that um, the Roman occupation itself has actually caused um, these things that people are living with, um, that these aren't uh, strange um, individual incidents that aren't connected to a larger narrative, um, but that there's actually been um, some intention behind um, leaving people wounded and distressed and diseased and in need of healing. Um, as I think about um, your work and um, how you've stepped into the place of uh, advocacy and solidarity, with people who are suffering. Um, you mentioned at the start uh, a church um, that you're a part of that has international acclaim. Um, some people might be thinking parallels in 2022, but um, uh, we could say that Willow Creek was kind of the hillsong of the 90s, right? That it was um, 
it, it was a, a model that people looked to. It was a, a church that um, held conferences that leaders in cities are, around the world, and I really do mean uh, around the world, um, yeah. uh, contributed to. The, the church you're a part of actually it shaped what churches look like globally in really, really significant ways. Yeah. And I think part of what you've been a part of um, uh, unveiling, unmasking, reveals something not just in that particular church's culture, but larger church culture generally. Um, would, would you speak to some of that and... Um, some of those patterns, I guess I'm giving you permission to draw the dots between your particular experience and the experience of so many who might be listening, even on the other side of the world. Sure. You know, I'm thinking of our circle of Tove. Is that okay if I outline that quickly? Please do. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what we did, what we start, my dad actually um, created, we, we found toxic patterns of churches that were unhealthy, obviously toxic. And those, those kind of came to the surface for us. And we saw many of these with Willow Creek, but like you were saying, it, it's not just Willow Creek. It, it is a systemic problem in many churches. Um, so the toxic, the toxic, um, qualities that rose to the surface for us as the most problematic were the narcissistic culture. Um, and again, I experienced many of these from Willow Creek, a fear culture where people, especially staff we found are afraid to ask questions. They're afraid to tell the truth. They're afraid to tell the leader anything that the leader doesn't want to hear. Um, we found a lot of, we called it institution creep where, essentially people, people should be put first, especially in a church, right? But what we found the toxic in some of these toxic places, the um, church and the image and the reputation is put above people. Okay. We found a lot of examples of churches rather than just telling the truth, like the pastor sinned, this is really sad. They would create like false, they would spin the story um, create false narratives. Um, this one happened to me. This one is personal to me. The loyalty culture is another big red flag where I lost multiple friends. Um, <laughs> and I look back and I can see, I, I didn't at the time, at the time it was extremely painful, but I look back and I think, okay, this is an example of loyalty where they have like a toxic loyalty to the church and associating with me is um is going to hurt their reputation within mm-hmm. saw a lot of that um celebrity culture can be a red mm-hmm. flag and my dad and actually eugene peterson have been harping on this for years where a leadership culture has kind of infiltrated its way into the church where the role of a pastor in the Bible is one of like a spiritual leader. Um, but it's, it's changed. Like you can see the trend has changed where pastors are now thought of as leaders and, um, CEOs. 
Right. CEOs. And it's like business models have infiltrated the church and it causes people not to be treated as people. You know, it's really changed um, the landscape of the culture. So we call it our circle of Tove. Those are the, those are the most toxic patterns. Those are the ones that rose to the surface for us. And Laura, maybe make it explicit for those who um, didn't do introduction to Hebrew Tov. Oh, yes. Okay. So Tov is the Hebrew word for goodness. It is a funny sounding little word. Um, it appears more than 400 times in our Bible. Um, on page one of Genesis, I think, was it 10, 10 times on page mm-hmm. one? Um all that God created is Tov, land is Tov, the birds are Tov, right? God is Tov. He Mm. calls us to be Tov. Jesus is our Tov shepherd. He calls us to do Tov works. The fruit of the spirit is Tov. This is like a, I've learned from my father, this Tov goodness is a master moral category in our Bible. It is how we Mm. as Christians are called to live. Yeah, that's really helpful. I had not heard of the word Tove, and now I say it probably 80 times a day. It's kind of a catchy little three-letter yeah. Hebrew word. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, I was, when you were um, talking about um, the Matthew 9 passage, and particularly the sheep without a shepherd, and you're you know, talking about the seeing and the compassion and then the action, um, it was... You know, I, I imagine maybe that Jesus is what came to my mind, at least, which I imagine maybe in Jesus's mind, Ezekiel 34 and, you know, the critique and on the the shepherds, the leaders who are abusing mm. and taking advantage of the people um, and this promise of a new shepherd that, you know, will. Um, so anyway, I was thinking about that in the like almost as the echoes that even strengthen just the compassion and concern for those that are being harmed and violated and mistreated um, Mm -hmm. that I think even enriches, yeah, what you're getting at in terms of Jesus's own response um, and the kind of model that we can kind of live into that uh, in our own lives. So I don't know if that's something you thought about, but I think that that certainly ties in there as well. And the other ways that shepherding throughout, you know, the Hebrew scriptures kind of often plays into the expectations of what a a good shepherd is, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You guys know, you guys are theologians, you know, way more about the Bible than than I ever could pretend to. But um, just hearing you talk about the context helps me um, have even greater appreciation for what Jesus did in that moment, you know, knowing that they were abandoned and helpless and harassed what was going on brings the passage to life and makes it all the more powerful and that there's reminiscent of Ezekiel you know there's tones in there yeah. that's really yeah. powerful. one of the things uh, I really love about you lifting up this passage Laura is that uh, I think um, there, there are models I mean Jesus could have said that you know um, there are people without a king um, mm-hmm. and instead it's kind of lost on us that shepherd is an, it's an odd imagery to, yeah. to draw. Like this isn't a strong man kind of imagery. This is not right. a CEO kind of image. Um, right. the, this is, um, you, you were talking about um, how the testimony of sisters would um, not be um, right. considered valid in a law court. Um, uh, and yet 
those who are um, called to be witnesses to the resurrection. Uh, sometimes we miss, particularly in our um, sentimentalizing of um, Christmas, that uh, shepherds too were not trusted. It's not a role that was seen as like anything glamorous or um, something to be desired or um, in the same way um, shepherds testimonies were not considered valid you needed more shepherds um, than you would anybody else's witness for it to actually hold any weight in court and yet wow. this is this is what's being called on as shepherds smell like sheep and uh, we have this um, loving expression in Australia and our Kiwi friends across the ditch in New Zealand, they use it as well. We'll, we'll call our fr friends, if they're being a bit of a dork, we'll say you dag. Um, and uh, dag means, uh, um, uh, you know, you're kind of not being cool. You're, um, um, maybe you're a bit unco and um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to find the American kind of equivalent. But the, <laughs> the, the etymology like of the term literally refers to um, that which hangs at the back of a sheep when it hasn't been shorn um, and they've done their business and that's a dag. Like it, it's, it's the bit of poop that hangs on the back of a, um, that's what sheep are like, right? Like um, sheep smell like dags and um, shepherds, if they spend time with their people, um, that's the reality that they're, um, sometimes literally caked in. A have you thought much about um, your role and your leadership in the advocacy work that you're doing? It seems to me to be a shepherd kind of role. It, it doesn't come with any um, uh, profile or glamour. Um, uh, it it's not a great way to actually build a following, um, yet it's found amongst those um, who are vulnerable to wolves had not somebody been caring for them. Have you thought much about your advocacy since the release of the book and prior and what it is to be a shepherd? You know, I, I don't, again, I'm still, as, as we were sitting here, I'm like, what am I doing here? Like, <laughs> you know, this role is still, I feel like I'm still, grappling with, with my role and how I landed here. Like, again, I, you know, this is a book that I wanted my dad to write. Mm -hmm. I, um, I, it's funny you asked that question. I felt the gravity today. I, um, I, I did an interview, a radio interview this morning, and it was with a survivor. And for the first time today, she publicly spoke of her story. She's written oh. about it. And I just, I, it felt, I don't have the words. I, it felt sacred. Oh, um, and I, I felt an enormous sense of gratitude. Like, um, just that, like, I, I just feel like I have to do work, what God's asking me to do. And I, I still find it extraordinary that I'm the one sitting here. Um, but like I said, I, I had a moment today where I felt like in, in the interview wrapped and she said something about like, she was exhausted. Like it was, it was hard for her to talk. And she was a little bit shaky about sharing her story publicly. She, like I said, she'd written about it, but hadn't spoken about it before. And 
I realized the, the seriousness of the moment. And I felt like I was the person to listen to her and that God gave me the words to say. Um, but you're right. It's not, I've lost a lot of friends. Um, people don't welcome whistleblowers with open arms and a listening ear. Right. Um, there's a lot of resistance. So I'm still, you know, kind of walking that journey and figuring out my role. Mm. I, I, so I opened up Ezekiel 34 because I wanted to read a couple passages because I think you're going to really appreciate this, Laura. Um, So I'm going to read just verses three to maybe 11. um, So it'll give a flavor. Um, But it says, let's see, three, you drink the milk so this is to the shepherds first directly he's he's talking to the shepherds you drink the milk you wear the wool and you slaughter the fat animals but you don't tend to the flock you don't strengthen the weak heal the sick bind up the injured bring back the strays or seek out the lost but instead you use your force to rule them with injustice without a shepherd my flock was scattered and when it was scattered it became food for all the wild animals my flock strayed on all the mountains and on every hill throughout all the earth my flock was scattered and there was no one to look for them or find them so now shepherds hear the word the lord's word this is what the lord god says as surely as i live without a shepherd my flock became prey my flock became food for all the wild animals my shepherds didn't seek out my flock they tended themselves but they didn't tend my flock um and then he goes he critiques them again and then one last thing so he go, he talks about he will release he rescue them and then he says verse 11 the lord god proclaims i myself will search for my flock and seek them out and he goes on about the seeking out right mm-hmm. um but i just think it's a beautiful image wow. but it's also a scathing critique right on yeah. the kind of leadership that was emerging and what god actually desires and i think that is just at the heart of so much of what you're inviting us to, even as you talk about the circle, right? And mm-hmm. talking about narcissistic culture and fear culture and institution, all the things that are self, you know, the institution and leaders building themselves up, the celebrity culture, the managing mm-hmm. and exploiting other people and, um, and not allowing them to have space for critique. And um, yeah, I mean, these are the questions that my students are bringing up in class. Almost, mm-hmm. it seems like no matter what subject we're talking, like we're it's going there more often. It's not because it's happening more now, but it's out in the open, right? It's unveiled mm-hmm. more. It's more visible than it ever has been. Um, and so, yeah, I'm so all that. I'm really curious about um, how, as you encounter folks, I'm sure it's just like nonstop. Uh, because of literally writing this, you know, book in, especially in this climate and moments, mm-hmm. like how are you ministering to folks when you're encountering, like, what, what um, is it kind of a bit of just what you said, or when you first, are you just sitting with people in their grief? Um, how are you encountering people who are uh, just feeling confused, lost, struggling to make sense of, you know, how their faith sometimes feel so tied to the community that they've been a part of. Yeah. Um, when we church called Tove was published, it came out to the public in October, 2020. 
And pretty soon after that, I and my dad too, both of us started to receive a steady stream of lists of letters, Hmm. Um, whether they were direct messages or emails or, you know, Facebook messages, whatever from survivors. Um, Mostly we got some from pastors, but it was mostly survivors and we wrote mostly about sexual abuse the letters we get are mostly about power abuse mm. and how th- the details all differ, but the theme is largely the same that you have a Christian workplace and there was a leader who misused power and the results are, are just devastating um, yeah. for the, for the person that was the victim Uh, You know, many people lose their jobs or they leave, they're isolated from their community. They're made to feel, you know, like they're crazy. There's a lot of gaslighting. Mm. And so those letters have sort of become a ministry. I don't necessarily like sit down face to face. I've had some of that, um, but mostly it's people who, for whatever reason, see us as a safe place to tell their story to and they mostly just want to tell their story um there's something in the book that makes they we've heard a lot of people say you gave us the language like I didn't know what it was but now I know what it was and I don't feel crazy yeah yeah it's so powerful Yeah. yeah I'm aware in Matthew's gospel just you know um a page over in some of our Bibles that um, our Lord is finishing the Sermon on the Mount and talks about um, uh, wolves in sheep's clothing and mm-hmm. how uh, sometimes these passages are used against um, uh, us whistleblowers who are actually trying to expose um, what's going on. And it's like, well, look, they're tearing at the unity of the church. They're undermining um, uh the image of the church, I found that language really fascinating, Laura, that you used before. Part of um, the institutional creep was a prioritising of the, the brand or the image uh, above um, people. Um, but there, there is something in the diagnosis of what Jesus is naming is that when leaders um, f- feed their interests um, and use their power um, and devour others, that's 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 what a wolf is um that that's one of the the clear signs that um that's what's going on um one of the things that's really helpful in the book is that um you you don't merely uh make a diagnosis of these dynamics that are found um not merely in the church but in larger society as well which i think is important to say um the the fact that it's not just the you know Um, scouts and the church it's where there are um, people and there is institutional cover-up and a prioritizing of um, hiding the truth to hold up the brand um, or um, the the institution that this happens Um, but you also spell out um, things that um, communities can start to lean into to change these dynamics. I'm wondering, Laura, um, the fact that you're a teacher and the formation you got as a teacher, um, maybe some of that formation is so helpful because things in theological uh, institutions, seminaries are sometimes so sick around these things that we've been Mm -hmm. taught to desire the wrong things and 
um, here you are as somebody who's been taught to care for little ones, and those skills are actually much more appropriate for a pastor than uh, what uh, mm-hmm. some of us have been formed in in the institutions that were supposed to produce pastors. Would you spell out for us some of the particular things that that help communities um, change this culture of harm to becoming cultures of healing? Yeah. Um, I first want to say churches, um, if they're toxic or tove, either way, they crave stability, right? Hmm. Um, so speaking up, speaking out, resisting the toxic dimensions of a church culture will destabilize and the stabilizers, the pastors, the boards, the elders, the unknowing resist the destabilizers. But what we have felt and where our hope comes from, my father and I in writing, is that Tov and the prophets, those that are bringing Tov, will not tolerate toxicity in the place where God's spirit is called to transform the culture into Tov. So what we found is we tried to counter each of these toxic um, patterns with a Tove alternative that, again, isn't going to just be met with open arms, but um, could could really um, revolutionize and and begin the, the healing process and the change process. So to resist the narcissist culture, nurturing empathy. Mm-hmm. nurturing grace instead of the fear culture rather than people being afraid to talk or ask questions like nurture grace in the congregation let people know it's okay to make mistakes it's okay to ask questions rather than institution creep um putting people first that was so hard for me with the willow story is i felt like these are people these are women that your church has wounded. They are, they are your sisters in Christ. You are not treating them like people who need to be healed. You're, yeah. you're putting them at the expense of protecting your reputation. Sorry, got passionate about that one. Um, telling- apologies, passionate. <laughs> oh, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> telling the truth. Um resist the false narratives. My father, one of my favorite um, parts of Tove is the section that my dad wrote about Yom Kippur. Mm-hmm. Probably not saying that correctly, um, but just about the, the Hebrew, the tradition the early church had of every year having a time of, of corporate confession where they would go and confess their sins. What we found and I'm sorry that I'm being, I probably sound like I'm being harsh on Willow Creek, but this is my story, um, mm. is they didn't have any concept of corporate yeah. confession and repentance. And, you know, modern day, like we have a pretty good equivalent with Lent leading up to Easter, but some of the evangelical churches just don't have like the biblical understanding or knowledge that maybe would have helped in the situation of allegations rising. Yeah. So tell the truth, resist false narratives, nurture justice helps resist loyalty, um, making service ordinary, a natural part, not getting up on stage as the pastor and saying, I served this weekend, like serve and don't let anybody know that you're serving. It will resist the celebrity. And then the big one, um, 
Nurturing Christ. Laura, I, I saw somebody share this week. Um, uh, the first rule of fasting is that you don't talk about fasting. Um, a, a nice play on that late 90s film Fight Club and the first rule of Fight Club. <laughs> that, um, uh, but it, it's that kind of um, that where to confess in public and to serve in private has been completely lost in um, a, a culture where everything is being turned into a, an image to share and like. And right. that's, that's so important what you just spelt out there. Yeah, my dad tells pastors, you serve you can tell your wife or your spouse about it. That's it. You don't yep. get up on the platform on Sunday morning and tell everybody what you did. That's the opposite of what, what we're talking about here. Mm. Um, I think I mentioned justice, resisting loyalty, doing the right thing at the right time, and then resisting the leader culture that is seeped into at least American churches. And I'm guessing it extends beyond America, but let's nurture Christ likeness and be the church rather than a business run by a mm -hmm. CEO. So we wrote, like I said, we wrote the book with a redemptive, we wanted to write a redemptive book. And we felt like it's one thing just to like name all the things that are wrong, but Tove, as I said at the beginning, is this master moral category in our Bible. It's the way that we are called to live and if we can flip each of these toxic traits with a Tove alternative, we can start to shift church communities and Christian workplaces from places of toxicity to places of Tove where people are loved and the wounded are healed and um, power is shifted. Mm. That's good. That's so good. Laura, I'm interested. So as you're doing this work, and I mean, I think anyone that is in the work of having a prophetic voice in the midst of injustice and harm that's happening, um, that is attentive to, you know, those who've been uh, directly harmed and wounded, um, that it can begin to weigh heavy on you as you're kind of re receiving all these stories and letters, you're mm -hmm. You were, you know, thinking about Willow Creek. Certainly, um, there's all these other stories that are going on, and I'm curious, um, what are some of the ways that you care for yourself, um, mm. and have you found that as you've kind of deepened in this journey, that you've found new practices for self care and for um, just staying well, even for your own spiritual and physical, emotional well being. Yes, I, I get therapy and <laughs> that's always mm. a good, I believe strongly in, and I'm so grateful for my therapist. Um, I also, I have a unique position where I disappear into the world of primary grades children all day long and they don't, you know, they don't care what I do. They're like, your teeth look yellow. Like, Thanks. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, you know, I was just on an interview. Thank you very much. You know, they don't care about that. Um, they keep me humbled. I guess that's one thing, but like I can, I disappear into a different world from, you know, 7am to 5pm every day. And, hmm. um, I'm kind of able to compartmentalize it that way. Like I, I try to do interviews and, and, um, conversations with with survivors on during the evenings and weekends um 
but I, I really do think I'm very grateful to have a job where like I disappear into a different world and mm-hmm. I don't have, because of the nature of young children, I don't, they don't really have grace for me paying attention to anything besides them. Um, and I think that that has really um, been a huge blessing for me with this um, place where I've landed is I have a place to go and disappear and be, you know, somebody else for most of the day. Yeah, that's good. You know, I was telling um, Jared that I haven't, this past month, I haven't been my best self and just how I've been feeling and stuff. But um, this morning I was thinking, because there's a song, which I don't know if neither of you probably know this song, but Nas is, Nas has an album, not his latest, but his other one. He's been dropping like a lot of albums, but he has a song called Nobody. Um, mm. And I don't know why I listen to it a lot. Um, and it, it is kind of just this idea of like disappearing off into like being nobody, right? And uh, I don't know if that's, um, but anyway, as you were talking about like, you know, just being able to escape. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's mm. something kind of beautiful about that idea of, um, not staying in those spaces where that that intensity and where expectations and um, the high visibility and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, yeah. so that's yeah. just what comes to mind. Yeah, yeah. It, it's also fascinating that in terms of studies of psychopathy um, professions, where um, and it, it was sometimes framed a decade ago that psychopaths are more likely to be attracted to these certain professions and they share a number of things in common in terms of um, uh, there isn't a need for empathy. Um, It comes with high profile and acclaim, um, these kind of power, um, and there are certain professions, but uh, the professions that are least likely actually share um, so one of the things that interests me is actually hairdressing was one of the places where you're least likely to find um, uh, people with who are psychopaths attracted to. And I was thinking about that, and uh, but particularly hairdressing, right? Because with nursing, I could kind of see it. Like with um, like primary school teachers, elementary school teachers. Sorry, um, uh, Turtle Island listeners. Um, uh, like you, you, you can kind of understand, but I guess it is so others centered. And just with what you were sharing, Laura, I wonder if it's not simply um, psychopaths are attracted to these kind of positions, but these kind of po- positions actually produce form. Yeah. Psychopathy. Like it's. Yeah. Are you familiar with Chuck DeGroat and his work on narcissism? No. Okay. Would you speak so, to that? Yes. He wrote an amazing book called when narcissism comes to church and he says, and he's been working in the field for a long time, psychology slash counseling slash ministry. He says that all pastors, sorry, Jared, aren't you a pastor and Dr. Hart? Okay. But I'm just going to say what he says. Um, they're all, they're all somewhere on the narcissism scale. And, you know, it takes, it takes, I can understand why, like you're getting up and you're sort of representing God to people. So it is, um, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg, but Mm. 
he says that an enormous percentage of pastors falls somewhere on that scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I, I highly it- recommend his work, his website, everything that he's written, follow him on Twitter. He's always tweeting wisdom. He's one of the best. Yeah. yeah thank you. Yeah. I find it fascinating to stay in Matthew's gospel that, um, uh, like when we come to the parable of the sheep and the goats, again, it's all hidden stuff. Uh, but when we're actually found amongst um, <laughs> those who need healthcare, those who are refugees, the, the stranger, um, uh, those who need clothing, um, those who are hungry, those who are thirsty, uh, I feel like I've left, um, uh, those who are imprisoned, mm. um, all this work, much like um, teaching little ones, um, no one cares when you're in those spaces. Like if you're spending your days in, in those kind of spaces, um, no one cares. And interestingly enough, um, uh, that final judgment, people don't know. They're like, when did we do these things? When did we see you? So there, there seems to be something about the, the nature of discipleship um, uh, and how it saves or delivers from narcissism is that we go from um, forgive us father we don't know what we're doing in terms of the evil we're doing to this um, conscious self uh, awareness um, where our left hand doesn't know what our right hand is doing as we um, share mercy that we've received and what is it to actually be found in these places i wonder if there was a quota requirement for pastors to spend time like serving refugees and uh, serving in prisons, uh, whether what happened in the pulpit on a Sunday behind that sacred desk would be um, less sick, um, less toxic and more tov, uh, uh, mm-hmm. to use your terms, Laura. Um, do, do you have thoughts about, um, uh, well, I, I guess those of us that um, could be, on that spectrum and what salvation looks like for us. I would say, so here's what my thoughts are. Surround yourself with people that will tell you the truth Mm. um, and listen to what they say. I wrote, you know, in Tove, I wrote, I was half kidding, but I guess kind of half not. Like, if you want to hear the truth about yourself, step into a first grade classroom. (laughs) They will tell you. Like your makeup looks bad or why does your face look weird? You know, your teeth are yellow, but, but there's some truth to that is, is be with people that aren't just yes. People that tell you what you want to hear, be around people who will tell you the truth about yourself and the opposite of narcissism is empathy. Yeah. Nurture empathy nurture compassion, um, spend time, like you said, with the wounded and enter into their story and don't tell everybody that you did it. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. but be with the hurting, the desperate and allow yourself to be open to what people will tell you and be accountable to, um, this was another thing we found with Willow Creek is, Bill Hybels really wasn't accountable to anybody. 
The mm-hmm. elder board, there was a report that came out and the elders themselves even said like when they were in a room with Bill, they felt like they were with a celebrity and he would get stern and they would all just quickly fall in line. So my point is like, I don't think that he was really accountable to anybody, not really. And I think that's important too, is, is to be accountable. Yep. Hmm. That's good. So good. Laura, I'm aware of your time. You've been so generous and um, you've kindly made time for um, our community to ask you questions in the unrecorded section. But if, if you were to leave uh, people with anything, whether it be where they might um, uh, find further resources um, or uh, follow your work um, or um, any encouragement. We just wanted to give you an opportunity to do that um, before we uh, wrap up here and transition into our Q and A time. Sure. Well, I I first of all want to say thank you so much again. Thank you for having me. I'm I'm still kind of stunned and grappling with the with the role that I found myself in. This is not my training. This is not my background, and so it's not lost on me for. Um, I don't know the word, the opportunity, the, um, I would ask for prayer because it's not always comfortable for me, you know, like I know a lot about, um, writing curriculum and managing a classroom and helping children learn how to read. But, um, I would appreciate, you know, prayer because it's, it's a sacred role. It's also hard, you know, um, like I said before, whistleblowers are not like welcomed with open arms. It's, um, we take a, you know, we take a lot of hits, we pay for it, but, um, ultimately it's worth it. Um, check out our website, churchcalledtove.org. We have a lot of resources on there, the resources tab, um, where you can find websites, Chuck DeGroat's website is on there. The one I mentioned earlier books that we would recommend his book is listed and um, there's a place to correspond with us if, if anybody would like to, to write. Um, always, always write back. Appreciate hearing from people. Mm. Maybe some um, good lists for future guests there, Drew, for us as well as we yes. help yeah. to support people in this work. Well, Laura, um, would you feel comfortable praying for our listeners as we close? Yes. I. Um, if it's all right with you, I'm going to read the prayer at the end of Tove and change it a little bit, but um, I like this prayer. So I'm going to read it. Thank you. It's meant a lot to me over the months. Father of all mercy, you know, the hearts and minds and acts of all your people, you know, all, and you reveal your truth in Christ grant to us, your people, including the pastors and churches that we've mentioned here this evening to know the truth of the gospel and to know the truth of your grace, which transforms us into Christ-likeness. Grant further, O Lord, the rich grace of reconciliation between those on opposing sides of the devastating events that we've seen in our churches. Grant this so that we may live in the light, knowing the grace of your forgiveness and power and walking in the way that brings you all the glory. Through him who lives with you, the Holy Spirit, one God, 
now and forever. Amen. 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 Thank you, Laura. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse.